Welcome to the Stay Tuned with the Chlorine Institute podcast. The Chlorine Institute, also referred to as CI, is a chemical trade association based in Arlington, Virginia, that focuses on advancing safety in the chloroalkali industry. In this podcast, we will dive into the topic of safety as it relates to this industry. I'm Robin Brooks, Vice President of Health, Environment, Safety, and Security at the Chlorine Institute. Joining me today is David Libby, partner at Krauss Bell Group, a consulting firm focused on improving safety leadership, workplace culture, and performance within their clients' organizations. David has been in safety leadership industry for nearly 30 years. David's varied experience includes work in healthcare, mining, food and beverage, chemical, utilities and transportation, from frontline employees to the chief executive officers. David holds a bachelor's degree in forest management from the University of Maine and earned his human resources certification from the University of Minnesota. Welcome, David. Great to be here. Thank you. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. You recently gave a presentation during the CI virtual annual meeting on two of the seven key insights on safety leadership based on the book written by two of your colleagues at Krauss Bell titled Seven Insights into Safety Leadership. I found the book fascinating. Can you explain how brain science has been used to raise the bar in safety? Oh, that's a great question, Robin. Thanks. And thanks for inviting me to the podcast. We're excited to be a part of this. Um, So yes, Insight 7 in our book, The Seven Insights into Safety Leadership, gets at uh, this brain research you you asked about. And uh, there's, in the last 15 or 20 years, there's been a lot of advancements in uh, brain science and uh, and its influence on safety, and um, and we've been doing a lot of work in that area with clients uh, in the in recently and and really kind of moving up from the focus on behavior to um, upstream from that to how do people think about behavior and think about decisions before they make them, and so it really is kind of a precursor to behaviors. That we've been that we've been studying and working on uh, with organizations. Um, there are dozens and dozens of these things called cognitive bias, and um, we've been studying those. and And in our work, have found ten to fifteen that are very common. Uh, one of those, uh, just as an example, is the concept of normalization of deviation. Sure. Thanks. And so. These cognitive biases, does this differ from behavior-based safety? I've participated in a few behavior-based safety programs in the past when I worked at a facility and there was focus on what sort of state you're in. Are, are you rushed? Are you tired? Are you fatigued? Uh, do you have compete? Are you highly distracted? And In some of those programs, it talks about how if you're in one of those states, you're more likely to make an error or to accidentally skip a step. So are these cognitive biases, are these different from those different states that we've heard about in behavior-based safety before? I I think there's a lot of overlap with with what you described. Um, At the same time, I think what's different is in the behavior, and I've helped companies put behavior-based safety programs in for many, many years, so I, I, I get what you're, you're asking about. What I think this does is, it, in at least a couple of different ways, I think it's different. One, um, it, when you identify some behaviors that are particularly concerning, you, you go out and you see 
um, the workforce maybe doing some things that putting themselves at risk. What, what the brain science helps you do is help you figure out why they're making that decision to do it that way. And, and as you said, in some ways, uh, those decisions are amplified by their, their, their emotional or mental or physical state. Um, and so there is a lot of, of work to be done, I think, to understand more about how fatigue and how uh, even psychological safety topics like mental health can, can influence decision making. Um, but this, this kind of focus helps, we think, helps get a, further away from blaming employees for doing things that might contribute to, to incidents and near misses to better understanding how um, our, all of our brains are wired uh, in, in such a way that we may, we may fall into that situation. So one of the areas I was thinking about when you asked the question was, um, you know, again, going back to folks that have lots of experience or lots of years of service or have been doing tasks uh, for many, many years, your brain kind of has two, two main pieces, a fast brain and a slow brain. Your fast brain is, is much uh, much much more efficient. You you don't get as tired during the day if you can stay in your fast brain. And the problem though is, your fast brain is what automatizes the tasks that you do on a routine basis. Most of our driving tasks, by the way, most of our driving behaviors are literally being done without thinking. And that's I know a little scary to think about, but but this fast brain can work can happen at work too. And the thirty year welder who's always welded a certain way. Mm-hmm. gets into a place where um, they are, are um, in some ways, especially when they tell you this, this is when you want to get nervous. When they tell you as a supervisor, I've welded that part so many times I can do it in my sleep. Well, technically, they probably have. You're, you're <laughs> really in your, in your fast brain. You just, you just don't need to think about what you're doing. And you literally can be thinking about other things and still be uh, trying to get work done. We think that's obviously where you really want to put some focus and and think about not only distractions, but what are some of the ways that you can keep, you know, that that worker in that example more focused on on the task at hand, because at least our research is is pretty clear that we see far more injury problems, injury results or safety results that aren't where companies want with the more experienced workers versus the, the newer hires. And Although we often hear from, impl- from client organizations, they think the problem is with their new hires. When you actually look at the data, uh, it's far more prevalent in, uh, in where there's a, you know, more of an experienced work base. And, uh, and so we think that's part of it is uh, this, this fast brain notion that people get their routine tasks automatized and they literally don't have to think about the work. Yes, I've I've heard that described as system one and system two thinking before, and that's it's very interesting and sometimes very um, eye opening that so much of our brain could be automated and and it's really like an internal artificial intel- intelligence that's going on sometimes. So that's all very very interesting things and it definitely relates to uh, those that are that are working in the industries that we're working in and doing some of the same routine tasks that they're doing so often. So let's uh, shift gears a little bit. And can you describe one of your most notable safety success stories that you've had throughout your career? Could be someplace that you worked or it could be a a client that you've worked with. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, 
I know when I when I think about that question, I I go to I go to what I put a couple of examples in my own bio for people to get to know me. I had the chance um, eight or nine years ago to do quite a bit of work in the coal mining industry in Utah and Colorado. And, you know, when you think about tough industries and all, all the industries I've worked in, you, you find, you know, certain, certain aspects that are, are tougher than others. But, but that was an industry, as I got introduced to it, where there's a culture of, of what I'll call the macho hero kind of culture where mm-hmm. you're, you're not really a coal miner unless you're really tough, unless you can, you know, bend your arm in four different ways because it's been shattered before. And, and you just, you just get this badge of honor when you've been injured as a coal miner for whatever reason, it was really fascinating. And, and it's not the only industry that has that kind of, uh, kind of organizational culture, but it was certainly prevalent. And, so one of the mines I got a chance to work with in, in Utah um, was having recordable injuries. And of course, it's not OSHA, it's the MSHA, it's the Mine Health and Safety Authority. Um, uh, they were having MSHA recordable me- uh, injuries every week or two. I mean, it was just oh, wow. it was just what happened. You know, it was kind of part of the job. Like I said, it was kind of a psyche almost that, you know, bad things happen in coal mines and 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 people get hurt. Um, so I had the chance to work with uh, leadership at every level, uh, help them with a behavior-based uh, safety process that was a no-name, you know, no-blame kind of system that really just tried to look at the, the most common behaviors that would have happened right before, you know, one of these injuries. And, um, and, and what was, I guess, the most rewarding after spending probably I guess nine to 12 months working with them on enhancing the leadership capability of every, of every level of leader, right up to the general mind manager uh, to working with a group of, of, you know, hourly coal miners who put their own process in place and, and really develop that kind of brother's keeper mentality. Uh, they went two years without a MSHA recordable injury. <laughs> Wow. Um, and, and I guess to me, as much as that's amazing in terms of safety results, um, they, they also set production records in that coal mine and, you know, became kind of the shining star. The company had several mines. And when you can see how getting the safety part right really kind of pulled people together and created these caring relationships, not only between coal miner to coal miner, but a more respectful relationship between management and the, and the coal miners. It, it just created this cool place to want to be and, and morale was, you know, never better. And when, again, when you can kind of get to that place where employees really believe management cares about their health and safety, then, then the workforce tends to care more about the goals and objectives of the management of that facility. And it just, it just came through really, really clearly in that activity. And, and thankfully, I've had a chance to do that in a lot of industries, but that one particularly stood out because of just how tough it was um, the first day I, I showed up uh, at, that, at that particular coal mine. So I guess that probably gives a good example of some of the success stories I've been able to see. And it's so, it's so rewarding personally, and it's why I, I've stayed in this business now almost 15 years just in the consulting business. Sure, sure. That's that's a huge turnaround from weekly to more than two years. That's yeah. definitely something to be lauded. And so you, you 
spoke a little bit about that, but can you think of other times where a focus on safety has impacted the the company in other positive ways, whether it's you talked about production and, and some of the relationships, but just how you've seen how a focus on safety can have these uh, happy side effects in an organization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess, uh, so this kind of gets to insight one of the book. Um, and it, and it talks about how in our experience, um, we've just seen, there's a difference between saying that, you know, good safety is good for business and actually leveraging the power of getting the safety part right to really maximizing what I call the discretionary effort of people. So as I said, in the last example, when, when employees come to the conclusion that the, the organization and management of that organization truly cares about their, their, well, their well-being, their health, their safety, um, that typically unleashes the, the employee's discretionary effort, their willingness to provide their own extra energy, you know, extra effort, um, and, and actually focus and on their own kind of con- contribution to the success of the organization. And I've, I've seen it happen in, um, union and non-union environments. Um, it almost, that doesn't matter really at the end of the day, whether the group is, is represented by a union or not. It really is, uh, more about how the culture moves to a place where, people are willing to keep an eye out for each other. They know that management has their back and are dealing with, you know, the kinds of um, safety issues that, that management needs to deal with. They need to make their plant safer. They need to address the kinds of exposures that employees have to face day in and day out. And when, when the employees see management working on the right things, then again, it tends to tends to tap into and release that, uh, that willingness of employees to give, give of their discretionary efforts and become really meaningfully engaged in not only safety, but, but in really anything else the company's interested in. So our view is you start by working on the safety part, because mm-hmm. if you, even if you have in a union environment a fairly adversarial relationship with the union, if you can't find some common ground on protecting the safety of your employees and the union protecting the safety of their members, then, then you probably aren't going to be able to fix that relationship. But typically, if you can come together, work together in a joint fashion, uh, and work on some real improvements in, in getting the safety part right, then, then over time, you, you'll begin to move kind of a critical mass of the organization to where they're willing to engage in your quality improvement um, project, or they're willing to engage in a productivity improvement project, or they'll, they'll give you more ideas about ways to save cost. I mean, again, not everybody, not everyone's going to come with that, that approach, but, but a, a vast majority of employees come to work wanting the organization to be successful because they do translate that into their own success of their family and the viability of the work they're doing. So, so you just have to find ways to tap into that. And our belief is work on the safety part, right? And we talk a lot about Paul O'Neill in, uh, the, in Insight One in the book. And Paul was just a, a great illustration of a very executive leader. He took over as CEO of Alcoa and, and took the company from a $3 billion company to a $27 billion company in his tenure. And, and it was very clear to anyone working around him and the investor community that his focus was on getting the safety part right at Alcoa. And he knew that if he could get that right, 
everything else would take care of himself, uh, take care of itself. So just again, there's a, I know there's a lot of younger Paul O'Neill's out there in the world, but mm-hmm. he, he still kind of is uh, elevated often as kind of one of those really public uh, high level executives who, who really got insight one. And that is get the safety part right. And the rest of the business will take care of itself. Yes. And so with, with Paul, wasn't that a really almost novel thing to do, especially on investor calls and things like that at the time? They kind of thought he was a little kooky. I mean, let's just be honest that uh, it was too, too myopic, too fo- one, one, uh, one, one focus. And, um, but he just knew that that was, that was the, the catalyst uh, getting, you know, again, he thought he could get to zero. They didn't quite get to zero by the time he left, but they got really close. And, and uh, again, he's, he points to a number of other improvements that happened because uh, of the work they had done in safety. They kind of earned the hearts, if you will, earned the hearts and minds of the employees by, by getting the, the safety part right. And, and so, um, again, I've seen personal examples in addition to the coal mine in a, in a glass bottle factory not too long ago, the same kind of things with a, with a, with a, um, a, a, uh, single size, uh, single cup coffee company that will remain nameless, but you could probably figure out that did some of the same kinds of things, uh, worked really on hard on getting the safety part right. And all kinds of other great business results, uh, came with it. So what you're talking about just seems to apply to anyone who's, who's working, but ha- in your work, have you seen, um, as generation shifts as, as culture changes have have you seen how um, safety is talked about how how different programs are rolled out how leadership talks about safety has it changed as as generations changed and what have been the positive changes and some changes that maybe could go by the wayside that you've seen <laughs> yeah <clears throat> that's an interesting question i think um there's so much variation in, in what I've seen, but I guess if I had to generalize a little bit, you know, I, I, um, I'm towards the end of the baby boomer generation. So I, and I've worked with a lot of baby boomers and, and, you know, many of them came up before even OSHA was formed. And so you, you, you have a lot of, it's, it's interesting to talk to that generation because they, they like to talk about what it was like in the old days and, and we didn't have PPE and we didn't have safety systems. And, and again, I think part of that's that whole attempt to keep that culture alive of, you know, we're tough and this new generation aren't tough. And, and the way I think about it is uh, it, it, the chances I've had to work with some of the, you know, millennials and, and Gen Xers and, and, and kind of, the younger folks is um, there they have a they have an awareness of safety that's far you know I guess more advanced I mean they've they've been hearing about safety in school more than any of us did when we were in school and uh, there's a lot more protections in place that they just have come to expect and so 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 they're starting off in a in a better place if you will if you were to compare new hire to new hire uh, but the challenge is, to the extent that there is that that old guard, you know, still doing the senior jobs. Again, thinking kind of in a in a unionized environment where there's a line of progression and it takes many years to move up. They're often being coached and mentored and taught by the folks that are still kind of thinking, you know, a little bit old school. So it's not hard to take 
you know, uh, the younger new hires and, and teach them the shortcuts we talked about a little while ago, them that you can get that 10 step process done in nine steps. And, and not so much that they're anti-safety, it's just that because nothing bad's happened to them, they think it's okay to do that process in nine steps. And, and unfortunately, again, it could be years from now, um, that the bad thing doesn't happen until there's a few other, you know, um, pieces that come together to, that makes it, makes it a problem. But, but that's the kind of thing that, um, I'm seeing, I'm seeing in, in organizations now. And, and I think it's, um, and I think there's some positive and negative that goes with that. Sure. Sure. And, and it's interesting that you talked about training across generations and there is the, the risk of doing that 10 step process and training it as nine and a half as, as if that, that is, but what I, what I've seen also is that you, you talked about the welder earlier that could weld in his or her sleep and, but sometimes introducing someone to train or apprentice could make that person who has such, so much experience explain each part of each step and kind of wake up and get out of that fast thinking and go back to the slow thinking. And so do you think apprenticeship programs or mentoring programs can help to, to raise the level of safety because it causes people to have to explain why they do what they do in whatever in order and things like that? Yeah, I think it's, it's a really good point. It's, it's one of the, the areas I'm, I'm kind of pretty passionate about when I show up to a client organization and we're trying to get, to understand and learn about them. The first thing I go look at, one of the first things I look at is how are they handling training? Not only safety training, but as you kind of indicate, just on the job training. Um, because I think, as you say, there's a, there's a real opportunity there to either help yourself or hurt yourself. And, and, um, and unfortunately I see too often that organizations, um, have have not put enough resources into the training process and the training systems. It's it's one of those first areas that get cut when it's when times are tough and you've got to back down on spending and you start to see what you invest to get people adequately trained and it's an easy place to say, well, let's just put a hold on training for now. And unfortunately, given given the number of baby boomers now retiring, I think it's probably more of an issue today than it was even ten years ago. Um, that that without the right resources, um, we're we're again we're kind of setting ourselves up for problems down the road. Because um, what I find a lot is is not a focus on on a mentoring or a or an apprentice type program. What I see is the last guy in trains the next guy in and, mm-hmm. and it just, it's just wrought with problems when, when you don't have a dedicated uh, trainer that's um, again, can be your 40 year employee um, as long as they're training and has safety kind of explicitly built in. Um, I see too often that because resources are stretched and budgets are stretched that, that uh, and turnover is so significantly high in some of the industries we work in that that it's just it's just a really really hard situation and yeah. they've moved they've migrated to this situation where anybody can train anybody who trains gets a training rate so people are motivated to go get the training rate and they're not not everyone's really cut out to be a trainer <laughs> and even even yeah. if they even if they have good intentions 
the program really should be much more structured. Um, it should be much more driven by the, the criteria by which a qualified, you know, person is actually doing the, the training and, and, um, and not that, uh, you know, last one in trains the next one in it, it. It's just all really problematic. And I see far too much of it in the work we're doing. I think I can ask you a gazillion more questions, <laughs> <laughs> but all of this stuff, all of this, all, all the things you mentioned are, are just so interesting. So I want to um, ask about the seven insights book. So how, if people are interested, how can they obtain a copy of this book and, and learn more about you and the Krauss Bell group? Yeah, well, uh, you can buy the book on Amazon, but we actually prefer you come to our website. We also have a, a lot of uh, free resources. We blog a lot and all those blogs are free for people. We've been blogging about COVID-19 and, and, you know, the kind of the new, the new norm, the new reality we're in. And so I, I encourage people to go to our website at krausbellgroup.com and, and um, much like we did for the, the virtual um, conference, we have a, a discount code. So if you go to that part of our website that has books and we have other books, but the seven insights book page and you decide to buy a copy, all you got to put in is a code TCI25 and you'll get a 25% discount on our book. Um, and, um, and that's a good way to get to know us and who we are and, um, and lots of, as I said, free stuff on our website that might be helpful, especially in this environment. Um, so that's probably the best way. But yes, you can get it on Amazon as well. Um, you just, it's harder to, go, to use the discounts. So the discounts work on our website and I hope, I hope that gets people to, uh, to take a visit. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time and all your interesting work. Uh, I hope we can continue this conversation some other time. That'd be great. It was my pleasure. Thanks again for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Stay Tuned with the Chlorine Institute. To find safety resources and information on CI, visit our website at www.chlorineinstitute.org. The comments, views, opinions, and recommendations expressed during this podcast are solely those of the guest speaker featured in this podcast. The Chlorine Institute, or CI, does not endorse, support, approve, recommend, or certify the comments of the guest speaker. Any third-party material or content referenced during the podcast does not necessarily reflect the policies or standards of the Chlorine Institute. CI assumes no liability or responsibility for the completeness and accuracy of the third-party content. Any views and opinions expressed by the CI staff are those of the employee and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Institute. The Chlorine Institute does not make any warranty that the podcast or server used to make the podcast accessible is free of viruses or other elements that may possess harmful or destructive properties. Any questions regarding this disclaimer should be directed to CI's communications coordinator, Raina Ely.